Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 26. And today uh, we're going to be talking about something called subdivision and government control. And uh, this is a very important topic because it brings to light the fact that, uh, you know, even so you own property on your own, and it's your property and you're entitled to the property, you also have this other partner, if you will, sort of like a, we could call them like a silent partner, and that happens to be the government. And when we talk about government, we're talking about all levels of government. So you have the city, the county, you have the state, you have the federal government. You have all these government entities that through rules, regulations, legislation, all different kinds of things, laws, have a way of controlling what you can and cannot do with property and uh, also covers things such as what, if you're selling property or you're financing property, things like disclosures, which you have to tell clients uh, so or people that are going to be borrowing money on the property. So what we want to do today is we want to talk about the subdivision of government control. Uh, so uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about is the subdivision laws. And when we talk about subdivision laws, we're talking about where we take a piece of property, if you will, sometimes raw ground or bare ground, and we change that from, say, agricultural use into buildable lots that we can build houses on. So we're going to be talking about that and what parts of the law that affects. The second thing we're going to be talking about is something called the Planning Commission and Zoning. Uh, when you get ready to change the use of a piece of property or you get ready to build something on a piece of property, it's just not like you go out and find somebody that has a bulldozer and start, you know, breaking up the ground and digging some ditches and laying in some pipe. There are certain rules and regulations you have to follow. And so well, we're going to be talking about the planning commission uh, and also zoning, what you can and can't do with property and how you go about finding out. The third thing we're going to be talking about is something called uh, housing, building, and health laws. These are laws that affect, uh, you know, the habitat or how houses, if you will, are maintained for people to live in. So we'll be talking about that. Next thing we're going to be talking about, too, is something called fair housing laws. There's quite a bit of legislation that has been passed over the last uh, more than 100 years now that affects things and how, you know, where we cannot discriminate against people when we're, uh, in our lending practices or in our sales practices. So we want to talk about that. There are some other things called uh, water conservation and use, which is getting to be a big topical, a big topic area, if you will, in California specifically. I know where I happen to live, it's a big issue uh, up in the El Dorado County area because there's been years where we've had times where we've had droughts and not enough water, and they've told us to do things like don't water your lawn. And now we even have where I happen to live where we have two types of water. We have water that we can drink, and we have recycled water. In fact, we have two different color pipes. The purple pipes are the recycled water, and the white pipes happen to be the, the water we can drink. So we'll talk about that. Uh, redevelopment. Redevelopment is another topic area. It's where the government, if you will, whatever that government entity happens to be, is going into a, if you will, neighborhood or geographical area and saying, you know what, the the area has continued to go down. There's there's crime in the area. There's blight. The houses are kind of falling apart. And what the government entity is is doing, like say for example, Sacramento County, is saying. 
you know what? We have two choices. We can either let it go like that until it finally turns into seed and the houses fall down and we're done with it, or we can go in there surgically, if you will, and turn that neighborhood around. And they're going to do that through something called redevelopment. And there's a lot of that redevelopment that goes on within a community such as Sacramento City, Sacramento County, and in a lot of towns, if you will. And then finally, we'll be talking about, and these are not necessarily in that order, but something called eminent domain. Eminent domain has to be, has to deal with the fact that the government has the right in certain circumstances to come in and do something called take your property. And typically when they do that, they're doing it for the betterment of the entire community. And so there's been some legislation that has been recently, uh, not legislation, but there's been some Supreme Court decisions that have recently been voted on and, if you will, approved that Supreme Court process where uh, where uh, government uh, bodies can go in and take land, not just because it has to deal with the fact of, you know, it used to be where, hey, you know, the only way we could take your land is we want to put a highway in there, something along that line. Now... The, the Supreme Court made some decisions that says, you know what, we can take your property if, if by taking it, if we can actually turn that around and help us generate more revenue for the county or the city and also more jobs. So there's economic reasons, just purely economic reasons why a government entity can go in and take property. So we're going to be talking about that. So as normal, what I'll be doing is showing you some things out of the book on the document camera, and we're going to also be talking a lot about definitions. There's a lot of definitions, as usual, in these topical topics, if you will, so we want to make sure that everybody is on, on uh, track with those. So what I'm going to do is just go over here, and we're going to talk about first about uh, something called the doctrine of police power. Now, police power, by the way, does not mean that we are going to send out somebody in a police car with a, you know, a red light that's flashing or blinking on the top of it. That's not what we're talking about. So we have to make sure we understand what this police power is. So it says, uh, and I'll go through this. It says, with a population of more than 35 million people, and growing, by the way, California has more people than any other state. That mean that <clears throat> excuse me. That means we have approximately 12.5 percent of the United States population, mainly because we're popular. Uh, since we are a in such a fast-growing and mobile state, the problems encountered can be tremendous. <clears throat> excuse me. The state and the local governments have the responsibility, under the doctrine of police power, to enact and enforce legislation acts to protect the general public. That's what we're doing with the police power. We're trying to protect the general public. Uh, this uh, public prevention in the real estate area prevents fraud, misrepresentation, and deceit. Going on from there, it talks about police power is the right of the public officials to control the use of private property for health, safety, and general welfare of the public. So to make sure that this is really clear, what we're really talking about is when we discuss these laws, such as zoning, such as planning, where streets go, where, uh, you know, planning, for example, we have areas in, in Sacramento where there's been planning that's been in process for years. For example, we just recently, I think about a year or two ago, widened the uh, bridge that went over Watt Avenue because we had traffic problems um, on Watt Avenue. 
We're seeing that's happening. There's discussions now about doing uh, bridges, if you will, in the, in the town of Folsom because we've closed the road called the Dam Road where the Folsom Dam happens to be. So there's a lot of this planning that is going on. In fact, I think recently we just voted on some bond issues that's allowing us to go in there and now uh, very quickly. In fact, there were some articles in the paper where the government is going in to, and looking at the priority of different types of projects, such as widening Highway 50, uh, doing things to help us. Okay? Police power also can mean where we have laws and rules in effect where, for example, that will separate and say, you know what, we cannot have that residential home located right next to that rubber factory or that paint factory or that noisy airport where we have certain areas where we place certain kinds of property. That's to protect us as consumers or as taxpayers is to help separate those noise and those other problems that are there, the pollution problems, whatever they happen to be. So it's the government that sits there and goes through this planning process, and then once they do and they enact laws or legislation or whatever, then they make sure that they are followed. That's part of the police power, all for the betterment of us. Uh, going on from there, it says police power is the power to make rulings to control the use and taking of private property for the protection of the public health, safety, and welfare. Police power allows the state, county, city to protect citizens by controlling how land is being used. Okay, so that's very important that we understand that. Uh, very, very important. And I'm going to go on because I, I think it's important that we make sure we have a really good, firm understanding of this police power. So I'm going to go on from there and just uh, point out a couple things that I think is important. Uh, it says police power provides for the regulation of lot design, in other words, what the lots are going to look like, the physical improvements for an orderly and proper development of a community, the construction of streets, highways, parking facilities adequate for a car-oriented society, and the certainty of adequate water supply. Very big issue in California, by the way. If you think about it, we're always constantly arguing between northern and southern California about water. It's a big, big issue. Uh, it ensures the protection of life and property by police and firemen, the maintenance of and purity of the air we breathe, the control of noise, the disposal of sewage and waste, and the provision under public under public and private regulation for essential utility services. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about that. If you, you know, in fact, recently I was just talking to somebody about this. I can remember probably back in, um, oh, I would say probably back around 1974, 1975, maybe 1973. I cannot remember the exact year, but let's just say 74. That happened to be the first time I ever went to, down to Los Angeles, to Disneyland. And I can remember when I went there, I had never really seen a place that was so smoggy, that the air was so filled that you could hardly see anything. I can remember going out to the car the next morning and seeing this black soot on the car. This was just normal. Okay, If you go to Los Angeles today, you'll have to believe me, but the difference between what it was like in 74, 75, and what it is today is a dramatic difference and change. Why is it that way? It's because the government, if you will, has put legislation in place that says, you know what, those cars that are putting out smoke and fumes and gas and all that environmental stuff and those smokestacks are causing pollution that are affecting our health and our well-being. We are now going to go ahead and make people put things on like smog controls. And we're going to make sure that they do that.
And we're going to take those cars off the street, like cars I used to own that look more like crop dusters going down the road, you know, burning oil. They're going to do that. And if you really want to have a good feel, flavor for what things are, go, you know, in other parts of the world are going on, uh, I just recently uh, was reading something in the newspaper, or maybe was listening to it on t- TV about China. China is growing through now; has gone very, very quickly to a uh, capitalistic type of society where you know everybody's trying to make money, make more money. People that used to ride bicycles are now buying cars. The pollution apparently is so bad, as described in this article, that they said on a good day they could see this building that was maybe about four blocks away. On a bad day, you could only you couldn't even see the building next door. Okay, there's a lot. I've been in other countries such as uh, in Thailand, where if you go to Bangkok, Thailand, the smog that's there is just really bad. Uh, you'll see open pollution. You'll see uh, open sewer systems. So the idea is that the people that in this country that are turning that around are the government. They put these rules and laws in there, and then they say. No, you cannot do that anymore. That helps protect all of us. Otherwise, if we didn't do that, it would, and we can see that from other societies that they'll continue to, you know, to pollute and make the area very, you know, very bad for us to live, if you will. So that's why we have it. So anyway, moving on from there, uh, what we want to talk about first is subdivisions, and I, I kind of want to make. Uh, make this really clear how this works. And I'm not sure whether I've mentioned it in this class or another class or whatever. But I want to take something that would be like a just a general, when we talk about a subdivision, we, meaning normal students and faculty and people, we're talking about usually in our mind we're picturing the fact that there's a bunch of houses that are located on some streets that have been recently built the streets seemed or appear to be well designed, and the houses appear to look quite a bit the same. So, in other words, what we're talking about is those. When we think about subdivisions, we're talking about uh, you know large housing tracts. That's the way we want to think about it. Now, when a developer, a real estate developer, decides that they want to take land that's currently being used for some other use, and typically that land in many cases, has, is being used for agriculture. Because what ends up happening is that we typically build a city. And usually we build a city to start with, like we did with Sacramento, because it's near some waterways. And it's located where it is because, you know, it's not that far from where we discovered gold. You know, so there's a lot of reasons why we locate Sacramento where it is. Usually we have a central core of the city. And then around the city we have agriculture. We have farms and ranches. So if we go, say, in the Sacramento area and we go west towards San Francisco, we're going to see land, farmland. If we go south, we're going to see farmland, different types of land. You know, south we'll see maybe, um, we'll see, like uh, west we may see rice fields. South we may see uh, things such as, uh, I'm trying to, I want to say grapevines. I can't think of the right name for that, but, uh, huh? Yeah, you might see cattle grazing, things like that. You go north, you may see rice farming. East, you may see some. Uh, east, you're looking mainly for areas, the agriculture that's up there. There's a lot of grazing, a lot of, um, in some cases, not a lot of, but you'll see things like apple orchards, different types of orchards. You'll see uh, vineyards for grapes. So the point is, is that as the city grows, Typically, it's usually starting to encroach upon agricultural land. I'm just saying that as, uh, you know, most cities are doing that. 
Now, when they do that, it's not like the builder just wanders out there one day and says, you know what, I think I'm going to go ahead and buy that track of land and build a bunch of houses. That's not how it works. What happens is, is the builder typically, and now keep in mind that there is a difference between a developer and a builder. And sometimes they both do the same thing. Sometimes they do different things. A land developer typically is somebody that is very, very knowledgeable on the taking land from agricultural into, say, residential commercial use. This is somebody that usually has an extensive, hopefully, an extensive amount of knowledge on how to do that, understands what needs to go into the process, has a really good understanding about how the government system works, what can and can't be done. Uh, typically, a land developer would typically start off by maybe either acquiring the land or optioning the land or ask, you know, getting some way that they can control it. They may very well have to do certain things like uh, possibly because the county or the city wherever the land is located might require some kind of environmental impact report. So you may have to ha hire some engineering firm to say, you know, if I build that subdivision there, what impact are we going to have on you know, the uh, the types of animals that are indigenous to that area. You know, we hear about the birds and the, and, uh, and the different kinds of animals that live in that area, the frogs, all that stuff. We will be talking about things like, hey, what kind of an impact is that going to have on things such as uh, uh, transportation, pollution, school systems, all that. So the developer may be very well involved in either doing that or hiring somebody to do that. In the meantime, the developer is also going to go out and hire somebody. Typically, it's going to be an engineering firm, and that engineering firm is usually a civil engineering firm, and this is somebody that has a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience in the use of land. In other words, they didn't wake up yesterday and decide to do this. They've been doing it for a number of years. And typically what the developer is going to do is sit down with this engineer and talk about the land, talk about what they would like to get accomplished, how many houses or properties they see on that land, how they think it should be laid out. After they hire the engineer, is going to go out and do a survey of the land, figure out where all the property boundaries are. Is the legal description correct? Because maybe the legal description might be something that was you know, done many, many years ago and it hasn't been updated. So they'll do that, and they'll come back, and the engineer will lay out the subdivision. And what they'll do is they'll figure out where the streets go, where the curbs go, where the, where the sewer system goes, where the housing lots go. They'll figure all of that out. Now, they know that what to do because they also know the requirements that the county or the city planning department and, and, and planning commission require, You know where they say the lots have to be a certain size or a certain depth or whatever. Once they do that, they create a map, and this map is called the subdivision map. And typically what they usually will do is that they will submit this subdivision map called a, a tentative map to the planning department. And the planning department will take a look at this map. Now, by the way, in the meantime, there's still cows wandering around on the land. The farmer is still out there plowing the ground. Okay, this is still going on. So we're talking more about a paper type of thing that's going on. So they'll submit it to the planning department. The planning department may say, wow, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in the world. I'm glad you're doing that. Where do I sign? You can start construction tomorrow. They may be very happy. Also, the planning department may very well turn around and come back and say, you know what? Uh, you've got to make some changes. Uh, and they'll say, well, what kind of changes? Well, you know what? We need a fire department. 
You know, you're going to have to designate some area for a fire department. By the way, that street's not quite wide enough. You need to have some room over here for a school. So in other words, between the engineer, the developer, and the engineer, the developer, and the planning department, they'll work together on solving these problems. A planning department, for example, would not want to put a bunch of houses in an area and say, there's no fire department. In fact, I was just talking to a fireman the other day, talking about the fact of, as they build, you know, up in the El Dorado County, as they build more tracks, they need more fire, you know, they're putting more fire stations in, you know, because you can't wait, you know, like your house gets on fire and you got to draw, you know, wait a half an hour for them to show up. They need to be there fairly quickly. So anyway, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's going on. So it may go back to the developer and the developer may sit, sit there and go, you know what? They may go and say, hey, they're, they're unreasonable and I'm not going to go ahead. I just won't do it. There's too many requirements. I'm going to move on. Or they may turn around and say, you know what? We'll go, we'll go ahead and we'll put the, dedicate the land for the fire department. We'll dedicate the land for the parks or whatever it happens to be and we'll move forward. Once that is approved, okay, once that is approved, there's a whole process they go through, but the idea is that you can have something called a tentative map, which means tentatively you can do this. Then you can also end up, when you get all done and it's approved, you end up with a final map. That final map is literally a map of the land, a map of the subdivision, showing where everything happens to go. Okay, it now then gets recorded at the county recorder's office, and that becomes a legal document. And from that point forward, all those lots that are in there now become the description or the legal description for each one of those houses. So that engineer will have said something like lot one of unit number two of the Pat Hogarty subdivision. Okay, lot two. That'll be the legal description. So who's created that? The engineer has taken it from raw ground, gotten it through the process, along with the developer and the planning department, and actually recorded a map. Okay, so that's one of the things. And that's covered by what we call the Subdivision Map Act. Subdivision Map Act. And again, that's covered by the local government entity. So we're talking about the city if the property happens to be located in a city, such as Sacramento, Elk Grove, Citrus Heights, city, or if it's, if it's included in what we call the unincorporated area, which is the county, then it's covered by the county planning department. Okay? So that's all take, and that may take a number of years for that to happen. Now, once that map is approved, does it mean that there's anything done on the property yet? It's still just there. <laughs> now, that, that developer may very well be the type of, uh, of, of person that says, you know, my, I'm really good at doing that, but I'm not really good at building streets, curbs, and gutters. Okay? So what I'll do is I'll take that approved subdivision map, uh, you know, land with the subdivision. I'm going to go ahead and sell that project to another person. And that could be another developer who's going to put in all the streets, you know, streets and street lights and curbs and gutters. Or it might be somebody that's going to put in not only that, but also build the houses. Depends. So you could have a developer that will just do the basic planning part and then turn around and sell it to a, a second developer that puts streets, curbs, and gutters in. And then maybe, like I see up in El Dorado County, that person may then just sell the lots and may sell the lots individually to individual builders that will build custom homes on each one of them or build, sell it to a large builder like an H.C. Elliott who will come in and put an entire community of maybe 100, 200, 300 homes. Okay, so it depends who, who, what happens and how, if you will, how large of, uh, how, how much money they have to be able to afford to do all of that. 
Okay, so that's what happens there. So uh, then what will happen is then, uh, you know, once that map has been recorded, then they'll go out, they'll build the street curbs and gutters, then they'll go ahead and build the houses, and then, uh, and then, and then finally sell the houses off, if you will, to we or us as consumers. Okay, Subdivision Map Act. The second one that's covered in there, and I'm just going to point that out to you right here. I'm just going to read what this is. This is where I'm getting this from, the Subdivision Map Act enforced by local count, city and county. Okay, And then down below, it goes down and it says, this act has two major objectives, to coordinate the subdivision plans, including the design, street patterns, drainage, and sewer, sewers, with the community uh, community pattern master plan, which is another thing we'll talk about, as laid out by the local planning authorities. Okay, number two, to ensure by fi uh, fill filing all of the subdivision map maps that parts of the subdivision area will be dedicated to city or county or public purposes, such as fire departments, schools, parks, so on and so forth. The dedications include public streets and other public areas dedicated to the subdivision so that they will not be an unmanaged future burden upon the taxpayers of the community. Okay, so that's what they do, in, and that's the Subdivision Map Act. Okay, planning department. <laughs> okay, same, so you, you know, if you, if you ever want to do something like that, like you want to split land or you want to find out where how it's zoned or what you can do, that's the people you talk to first. If it's in the county, you go down and talk to the county planning department. If it's in the city, you talk to the city planning department. They have very great people down there, very helpful. If if if, you, if they can answer all your questions, that's fine. If not, they may actually have answer what they can, and then have you maybe go to say the building department or some other department to finally answer everything that you need. But great people to do that. Okay. If you want to know what the zoning is, what you can build, um, you know how high of a house you can build, how big the house can be, what the setbacks are, they're the people that tell you all that. Okay. The other act that we deal with is something called the Subdivided Lands Act. Now, you think about this, it gets confusing. Subdivision Map Act, think about it that you're creating a map, a picture. Subdivided Lands Act is something different. Subdivided Lands Act is also not covered by the county or the city. It's covered by the Department of Real Estate. And if you go to the Department of Real Estate website, you'll see a little link there that says subdivisions. Okay, that's why, okay? Anyway, let me read what this is. It says, subdivided lands law, state law enforced by DRE, meaning Department of Real Estate. This law is statewide in its operation and is directly administered by the California Real Estate Commissioner. The basic objective of the subdivision lands law, and let me read the rest of this here, if I can get this up here on the camera, okay, is to protect... Purchasers of property in new subdivisions, notice in new subdivisions, okay, from fraud, misrepresentation, or deceit in marketing of subdivided lots, parcels, condominiums, or other divided property interests in the state of California, okay? So the idea behind this is, and I'll talk about this in a minute, we have to have, we may have a map that says we have lots, but we need to have something that's making sure that when we buy that property, you know, what we can and can't do. In other words, does it have a school district nearby? Does it have a fire department nearby? Remember, the, the they've approved these lots, but there has to be other things that are done. 
And so we're going to be talking about something called the public report. And this is a report that's given to every single solitary person that is buying a property, and they are supposed to read this report in its entirety so that you know, like, is there a homeowners association, okay? If there is, then you need to know then from that point is what's their budgets, you know, how is it going to affect me, are there restrictions that are going to affect my property use, how is that going to work? But it's the public report that you get. Now, keep in mind that... This public report that we talk about, if you're buying the first time, the first person that buys in that subdivision has to read that public report and sign off that they read and understand it. After that property is sold and now we have new owners, that public report is not read by the second, third, or fourth, or fifth person. What we do in that particular case is now we have, now we have typically an association that has bylaws, homeowners association, in which we will disclose to the new homeowners when we sell that property that they need to know that this exists. We'll provide them then with the homeowners association bylaws, rules, regulations, and budgets, and everything else for them to review. Okay? But that first one is the public report you have to read. Going on from there, it says, No subdivision unit can be offered for sale in California unless the commissioner has issued a subdivision public report. This applies not only to tracts of, uh, located in California, but also to subdivided lands laying outside the state's boundaries. Uh, the public report is a factual account of the subdivided property. And then it goes on from there. It just says the report is not issued until the commissioner is satisfied that the subdivider has met all of the statutory requirements with particular emphasis on the establishment and Facilities included in the offering and demonstrates that the lots or parcels can be used for the purpose for which they were offered. Uh, if you can imagine that probably many, many years ago, we've always heard about these land deals. We've always heard about somebody that has, you know, we used to joke when I was growing up about them selling swamp land in Florida. You know, the idea is, is that you want to make sure that the public is protected because that's what this is about, protecting the public by disclosing to them what this, you know, what the properties can be used for, you know, where they lie, all kinds of things like that. Uh, you know, is there fire, is there schools? Okay, so they don't move in and go, oh, well, I didn't realize there was no school system here. I didn't know that there was no roads. You know, I thought that was a road, but it's not a road, you know. Okay. Um, they give you a picture of the website here, and I know this is a little hard for you to see, but this is what you normally have showed you. Right down here is where it's subdivisions. That's the subdivision. Now, just so you know, whenever they do these subdivision reports, these subdivision reports, and I'm going to come back on camera here in a minute, they're called public reports. There's two types of public reports that are provided. One is called a preliminary public report. And the other one is called a final public report. Now, the preliminary public report is 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 pink in color. It's pink. It's tentative. Um, when we talk about it being a tentative color and being pink, it's so that it notifies the person that's reading the report. It looks different. It looks weird. It's pink. People it should stop people and go, what is this? Everything else you have me signing is on white paper. This is pink. So it's to kind of shock them or notify them. This is a this is something important for you to read. Um, so there's a pink report, and in that report, and I'll put it in a minute, it becomes important that you understand what that pink report can be used for. There's also something called a final report that's produced. Okay. 
Now, I'm going to go through this to make sure that uh, everybody understands this. Um, it says, as provided by the subdivision lands law, purchasers of home and new subdivision must receive a public report from the real estate commissioner's office. A public report is a formal disclosure of the important facts regarding the subdivision. It is, in the case of a developer's permit, to sell. Okay, it permits them to sell. Okay, now one thing, and I'm not sure whether it's going to be in here. Well, I'll go through this and I'll, I'll make sure I emphasize. It is not, however, a recommendation pro or con. So just because you happen to have a public report does not mean that the real estate commissioner says this is a great deal. It means that you have followed the rules and regulations, but it's still incumbent upon you to read that and make sure it's going to meet whatever your needs are. It's disclosing to you issues to deal with the property, but it's not an endorsement. It's not like, hey, this is a great deal, right? The report makes clear the physical characteristics of the land so that the buyer can know exactly what he or she is buying. The buyer is told the size, arrangement, and location of the lot and exactly what off-site improvements and recreational facilities to expect. Okay, that's part of the report. That is part of the public report. Um, they go down here and they say to you that the subdivider must give a copy of the commissioner's public report to anyone who requests it orally or in writing, okay? I will tell you that you are not going to buy a house <laughs> or anything unless you not only read it, but you sign off that you've read it, okay? It's a very important document. In other words, that developer is going to say, I want you to read this. They're not going to give you an exam on it, but they're going to want you to read it, and they're going to want you to sign a document that says you have read it. Very, very important. So when you come back later on and go, well, I didn't know that, they'll pull that public report out and go, it's right here, and you signed off, and you said that you read that report, remember? Okay? This is where exams are important. <laughs> it would be nice if you had an exam. You know, See, so what you could do is go back and say, well, you can't buy the house until you get at least, you know, 80 or 90 percent, you know, here. Here you can look at the report and not understand a darn thing and say, yes, I read the report, sign off on it, but really not understand what you're reading. Very important, though, that you do. goes on from there, and it says preliminary reports. Okay. Going down here, it says there may be two public reports. The optional preliminary report may be submitted to the Department of Real Estate as a, for tentative approval. Notice it says tentative, tentative. The required final report must be issued and given to the buyer. The preliminary public report, PINK, is a tentative public report that must be given to each prospective purchaser. The report is printed on pink paper, making it easy to rec and recognizable. It is given to the buyer when he or she makes a reservation to purchase or lease a lot or a unit or a parcel on a subdivision. So, for example, if you are want to reserve a lot, you know, like, for example, we've just gone through where, um, you know, in the uh, here in the real estate business, there's been such a huge demand for houses that people were just clamoring to get them. So if you have a pink report, it allows you to take a reservation, but it does not. It's still based on the fact that you still need to look and review and read the final because there may be something substantial that happens between that pink and the final report some major thing that happens. It could be the same, but there could be a difference. Okay? Uh, so going on from there, it says a purchaser, I think it's right in here, per, uh, prospective purchaser must be given a copy of the preliminary report and sign a receipt to that effect. 
Uh, a copy of the registration, registration agreement is signed by the prospective buyer and the money deposited with a neutral escrow company like, you know, financial title, somebody independent of the developer. So the developer can't take the money. Okay. Anytime we deal with escrow, we're putting it in an independent con- account so that neither party can get to it without having instructions from both sides. Okay. The reservation to buyer lease must contain a clause allowing the buyer the option to cancel his or her reservation at any time and immediately have the deposit returned. Any preliminary report issued will expire when the final report is published or after one year passes, whichever occurs first. The subdivider must keep receipts taken for any public report on file for three years. Okay? So this is a very serious matter. Extremely serious matter. Uh, again, if you're going to be buying a new lot, a new subdivision, something along that line, you're going to need to read this. Um, finally, down here, it tells you that the final report is a white report. It says the final public report is white. The Real Estate Commissioner's final subdivision public report is an official report that must be given to the buyer. The buyer must receive a copy of the pu- uh, public uh final public report, even if he or she has a preliminary report. Okay, so if you have the pink and the white comes out, you've got to have both. Okay. After having enough time to read it, the buyer must sign a receipt stating that the report has been received. There is a five-year uh, five time limit on the report, and it can be updated and renewed. Okay. Again, to protect the consumer. That's the whole idea of this, to protect the consumer. If you think about it, you know, if you're getting ready to buy a, a brand new piece of property, a brand new condo, condo house, you know, townhouse, uh, single, um, single, uh, one-family unit house, whatever you want to call it, you know, you're not necessarily aware of all the things that would affect that. You know, the schools, the fire department, all that other stuff. So by you having this one report and reading it, it's important. It should encapsulate and include everything, okay, to help you make a better decision. And again, why did they do that? Because guess what? There have been um, uh, there have been people historically that have sold properties to people and not disclosed the facts, the material facts, only to find out that what you were buying was something that, that was really not as advertised. So this is to protect those people. Uh, on this page right here, they they go down and they just show you this public report. Okay, so this is a um, this is a required receipt for the public report. Uh, down here is where you are signing that you received it. Uh, it says here, receipt for public. The laws and regulations of the local real estate commissioner require that you, as a prospective purchaser or a lessee, be afforded the opportunity to read the public report for the subdivision before you make a written offer to purchase or lease the subdivision interest or before any money or other consideration toward the purchase or lease of the subdivision interest is accepted from you. I think that's pretty clear. I don't know any other way. I think that's pretty well written. You should stop and read that. In the case of a preliminary subdivision report, a public report, you must be afforded the opportunity to read the report before a written reservation or any deposit is in connection with, therewith is accepted from you. Then it goes on down further from this. It says, do not sign this receipt until you have re- received a copy of the report and have read it. Uh, again, once you sign off, 
you're saying that you have received and read it. I think it's important that you read it. <laughs> you know, you don't want to move in and find out, oh, I did not know that there was an association that was going to, you know, I'm going to have to pay these dues to. Or I didn't know, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, especially if there's going to be a homeowners association tied to it, you really want to be aware of what those rules and those regulations happen to be and what the costs are going to be associated with it. Very, very important. Okay, and then you're going to sign down the bottom. Now, the other thing that they talk about here, and now that we've gone through all this, is that they give you this little chart, and they give you the subdivision laws summarized. And on this side right here is the Subdivision Map Act, and on this side is the Subdivision Land Act. Okay? I know that I wish I could have made them a little bit closer, but, I mean, you know, keep in mind, map is a picture. Okay? Uh, Land Act is a report. This is DRE. This is the, um, the county or the city. Okay? What this does is tell you when these laws apply. So if you look on this side, it says Subdivision Map Act, two or more lots or parcels. Okay, Land must be contiguous units. Contiguous means next to each other. Okay, No exemption for 160 acres or larger. Administered by local officials and no public report required. Okay, That's on this side. This is just encapsulating some of these things. On this side, Subdivision Land Act, that's the public report, if you have five or more lots or parcels, no, uh, in other words, they don't have to be contiguous, okay, next to each other. Uh, 160 acre or, or larger parcels are exempt, administered by the by this uh, California Real Estate Commissioner, and public report is required, okay? So those are the two differences between the reports, okay? Two differences between the reports, Couple things that you do want to know about is how do you handle um, uh, things like out-of-state uh, buyers? Uh, let me see here if I can go down through here. Okay, I'm just going to read this to make sure that everybody. This is land project state law. In recent years, lots in some subdivisions are located in sparsely populated areas have been sold by intensive promotional efforts that led to obscure, obscure the gamble involved. In such speculation, such subdivisions are referred to as land projects. A land project is a remote subdivision of 50 or more vacant lots in a rural area having fewer than 1,500 registered voters within two vials. That's just defining what that happens to be. Okay? Um, it goes on from there. It says certain laws have been established to protect the public from the risky venture, from these risky ventures by law. Any con contract to buy or lease land project may be rescinded without cause by written notice before midnight or the 14th day after the sales contract has been signed. Again, this is something that you need to know about, but what you've got to keep in mind is that many times people are, you know, the average consumer is not going to know the difference between this. You as a real estate person, looking at as a real estate agent, you're the one, you're going to be involved in this because you may be very well selling a brand new house. As an example, you may decide that you want to go in the business of listing and selling homes that have been what we call used homes or homes that have been people I've lived in. And you have no intention of ever, ever working for any builder or developer that's selling new properties. You're never going to be involved in that. 
all of a sudden one day you're driving around or you have an open house and somebody comes in and says, you know, you talk for a while and they say, you know, listen, could you help me buy a house? And you say, okay. So you make an appointment, you go out and you show them a bunch of these houses that are, you know, if you will, used houses or resale houses. And as you drive down the street, they point out something over there and they say, hey, what about that house? And you find out that's a brand new house. And you walk in and it's a model. And it's uh, somebody sitting on the other side of the desk, happens to be me maybe, <laughs> and you have some clients and they're interested in buying the house. The next thing you know, you're now involved with helping your clients understand these things like public reports, homeowners associations, and all those things, making sure they understand what's going on. So you may accidentally end up doing this and you have no intention. You just need to know what it is. Okay, I think, okay. After that, they, they help define some of the con kind of the common different types of properties that you're going to be seeing uh, with uh, developments, if you will. We have, and we want to do this because sometimes these become a little bit difficult for us to distinguish one from the other. In other words, we may look at something and look at it architecturally and not realize that there's a difference legally in what kind of property it really is. So we kind of want to know what it is that we're really dealing with. Why would you want to know as a real estate agent? Because you're going out to list something for sale. You want to know, am I selling a stock cooperative? Am I selling a, a condominium? Is it a townhouse? You know, what is it that I am selling? If you're buying something, you want to know what it is you're buying. Okay? So I'm going to go through this in really, really detail. First thing we're going to talk about is something called the common interest development. A common interest development is a project where there are common areas used by, used by all, accepting separate interests for you and individual living units and managed by a nonprofit or association. The four basic types of common interest ownership, which are defined as a subdivision, include a planned unit development, a community apartment project, a condominium including time sharing, and a stock cooperative. And there's a different form of ownership in each one of those. Okay, but we're still all, we're all considering that they're common interest development. And remember, common interest development, what we're talking about here is that I have my unit that I live in. My unit. Okay? I also, by my very nature of owning the property, I have access that are things that are common to everybody. So I may own my unit, can live in my unit, lock the door and don't let anybody in, but the pool area is owned by everybody. The tennis courts are owned by everybody. Okay, The clubhouse is owned by everybody. The park area is owned by everybody. So there's common areas and then there's my unit. That's what we're talking about here. Okay, the first one we're going to have is something called a plan unit development. I think this is probably the most common. This is a plan unit development, sometimes referred to as a plan, um, is a subdivision where lots owned separately but certain areas around are owned by common by all owners. Generally, an, uh, an owner's association is elected by all owners to manage and maintain the common areas. Now, this association we're talking about, we commonly refer to as a homeowner's association. The way that that works is that when a developer or a builder is building the subdivision out, they're the only one to start with that owns the property. And what they do is they establish this homeowners association. 
they may very well pay the fees of getting it organized, pay the fees of managing and maintaining it, and they will manage it. And they'll normally manage it up until they lose their majority interest. So what will happen is as they sell the lots, they'll continue to do it until they finally end up where they now have the people that live in the area have 51% of the ownership of the property, and they have 49%. At that point, they have gone from being the majority uh, voter, if you will, to the minority voter. And essentially, what they've done is they've passed that requirement on to the property owners. And this association, by the way, will have a set of rules and a set of bylaws. They'll have budgets. Uh, how formal they happen to be depends upon the association. You may go home tonight and open up your documents and may say, I didn't realize there's an association around here. I've lived here for all those years, but I haven't really seen anybody that has done anything. You know, I don't pay any fees. I don't pay any dues. Nobody's knocking on my door and telling me to get the old car off the front yard. That's not happening. So you may have that. Okay? The reason why is because what's happened is, is when they formed the association, they never formalized it. You know, I mean, in the sense of forming and having a president and a vice president and a treasurer and start collecting dues and fees and running themselves like a business. They just said, okay, we have an association. You may even find out you have bylaws that tell you you can't do certain things. You may find out you can't even paint the house the color that you want, but nobody has enforced it. So consequently, you don't really have an active association. On the other hand, you can be like where I live, where we have a real active association, where we have like a building. You know, we have a staff of people that work there. Uh, we can't do anything without getting their approval. I mean, if we want to put, for example, if I just want to put a lawn in or put landscaping in, uh, I have to actually go down and apply to them. I have to give them a deposit. They send inspectors out to make sure that I have followed the rules and the regulations. I don't get my money back. Uh, the, the, the funny thing that I like, I like to mention where I happen to live, which is up in El Dorado Hills in Serrano, what they did is when we put the landscaping in, one of the trees, to this day I'll remember, was like an inch and a half or two inches too close to the fence. It had to be five feet from the fence. Now, keep in mind, this tree is going to get bigger. It's going to grow, but it was two inches too. They made me move the tree, okay? Uh, things like satellite dishes have to be painted the same color as the house. You can't park your RV in the driveway. You can't park out in the street overnight. You can't par paint your house just any color you want. If you do, you're fined, okay? Um, and so, consequently, you have a very, very strong homeowners association, and um, they will manage things. They will make sure they're maintained and they're kept up. Okay, so you can run both extremes, okay? But that initially gets started with the developer. The developer is the one that starts the association and passes it on to the homeowners. Okay? Uh, going on from there, it says the common area is part of the lot or unit in the subdivision that is shared equally by the owners. Undivided interest and undivided interest is, is the right to occupy or use the proper... Uh, Right to, uh, by the owner to use any part of the project. So you, this would be typically like you own your individual lot and then you may have like a park, okay, or a clubhouse or a pool area or something like that. So you may very well see this in, you know, like in a regular, if you will, subdivision with houses, okay. The second kind that they talk about here is something called a community property projects, which is a different way of defining this. 
Okay. Community property projects are two or more apartments defined as a subdivision where the operation and maintenance and control is usually exercised by a governing board of elected owners of the fractional interest. An owner receives an undivided interest in the land together with an exclusive leasehold, not fee, but leasehold, right to occupy the unit. There is only one property tax bill for the entire project. So you may look at this and say, this looks just like a condo. But your legal description is different. You know, you, uh, you have a leasehold right to be there. Now, why is that important? Because you may buy the property and later on find out that, for example, it may be difficult to finance it. It might be difficult to sell it. It might be difficult because there's some... You just need to know that if you're listing the property for sale, what is it that you're listing? And if you're buying it, what in the world is it that you're buying? Are you buying a condo? You may think it's a condo, but it's not. So it's a different legal way of describing property. The third type that they talk about in here is a condo, condominium. And by the way, just so that you know, you can have these kinds of things. We think about them more like in the area of houses, but, for example, they have condominium projects that are office projects. There is a... Um, you know, here in Sacramento, uh, as you go down Howe Avenue towards Arden Fair going north, on the left-hand side, there's a place I frequent a lot called Laboo's. It's a coffee shop. I go in there and get sandwiches. There's a gym that's there, and then there's a building, like an office building. I think it's where this office building is. There's a sign outside that says, Office Condominiums for Sale. So you, there have been, there are people that will actually take an office building and create office condominiums. Now, who will buy those? People like dentists, doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever. Why will they buy them? Just like the same way why you would buy a house, because you want to have an investment. There's a pride of ownership. You're going to be there for a long period of time, and hopefully it will go up in value and you sell it and make some money, okay, rather than just leasing it. But you have that that way. Uh, condominium, just so we make sure we have a... a uh, a definition of it, a condominium is ownership of land and buildings in common with other owners plus an individual ownership of specific airspaces. So in a condominium, you own the airspace but not the wall, which is a little bit difficult for people to get the idea of, but you own the airspaces which you own. In a PD, the property owner owns the living unit as well as the lot. Condominiums may be used for residential, industrial, or commercial purposes, although residential type is the most common seen in California. Okay, and as I mentioned, you can go down there off of Howe Avenue and see the sign, office condos for sale. Okay, I've seen it for industrial property too. Okay. Uh, another thing that we have in here is something called time sharing. I think if you live long enough, you're probably going to be involved in taking a weekend for a timeshare or know somebody that owns a timeshare. The concept of a timeshare is this. We may very well want to have a place in Hawaii that we go. We'd love to have a beach house or a condominium in Hawaii to go on our vacation. But we find it difficult to buy it because maybe it costs five, $600,000, and we don't have that kind of money, but we would still like to have that right. So the concept behind a timeshare is that instead of buying the entire unit, 
what you do is you buy certain weeks in the unit. So you may very well spend, say, ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to have the right that in every January first to January fifteenth, you can fly to Hawaii and or or come to California or go to Lake Tahoe and go skiing every year. That's the weeks that you've bought. You'll go ahead, you'll have like a mortgage against it, you'll make payments, and then eventually, hopefully, it's paid off. And then what you're going to do after that is you'll, you know, then you'll go and every two weeks you'll have the right to go there. And of course, for those people that have done this before, you know that many times those different types of timeshares allow you to trade with other people that have timeshares, go to other countries. Um, there are people that really like this concept. My brother happens to be one. I happen to not care for it, but my brother likes it. They have had one for years and years and years. Um, I typically like the idea of going to different places and not having that responsibility or that obligation, but that's fine. You know, this this is for certain people. If you go, uh, for example, to places like Las Vegas now, they're doing timeshares in Las Vegas. You know, uh, just uh, if you don't believe me, go to Las Vegas and stand at the slot machines for a while <laughs> or walk through there, and sure enough, you'll run into a timeshare person. And they're selling them for the large uh very, very large hotel chains are into this business now. They're selling these timeshares. So you'll see this happening. Okay, again, that's a regulated type of a thing. This right down here, and we're probably going to be stopping here in a second, this talks all about timesharing. talks about timesharing itself, what its uh, pros and cons, what the advantages, the disadvantages are, and the restrictions are. Again, most of us are doing this because we want to have that place that we can go to for our vacation. Ski in the mountains, go to Hawaii, go to Florida, whatever. Okay. So anyway, uh, as I mentioned, we're pretty close to the end. The last thing that I'm going to talk about is something called the stock cooperative, and I'll pick up on this the next time. The stock cooperative is, is where you actually own... Your ownership in the property is witnessed by the fact that you have a share of stock in the corporation, just like you would IBM or Microsoft or Google or whatever. And when you get ready to sell, what you do is you sell your share or shares of stock. That's how that works. And so we'll pick up with that the next time that we come in. And with that, I think we're pretty close to the end. I want to thank you very much for watching. And we'll see you back here the next time for the next show. Have a nice day. Bye-bye.